Welcome to the SwapFlix Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombos. I'm Hannah Rassinen. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James and Hannah's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, SwapFlix. Swamp Swamp <laughs> <laughs> I was swallowing a little late a very on that one. Well, I thought it was a very professional swamp flicks, you know, swamp flicks. We're getting serious this year. That's yeah. right. Yes. Uh, because we're an official publication that uh, is an authority on the greatest mm, films of yes. the year. Every calendar year we weigh in. And the people wait with anticipation. <laughs> okay. I have a few things to clear up on microphone. Uh, this is like oh. not great podcasting, but this is good um, mm-hmm. editing on my part. All right. Last time we recorded, we committed a very severe faux pas for this podcast where we broke the three hour barrier. <laughs> Did we? The episode was three hours Good and God. some minutes long. Man, it didn't feel that long. It really didn't. I thought it went by quick. But I was I- in a fever pitch. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of wild. We talked constantly for the entire... Like, I didn't yeah. edit out that much stuff, and we were on topic the entire time. We were, like, on the movies yeah. themselves, moving from one to another, and it still took three full yeah. hours. What do you think of it, like, comparing this year to last year? Do you have any thoughts about what it might be? The have other been? one was almost three hours. I just oh, feel okay. like it's, like, increasingly encroaching on, like, a wider... Is it because we have, like... Is it the outlier count, you think, that pushes it out, or is it that... But at the same time, if we all have like a common, you know, thing right. on the list, we tend We're to talk about that to more. Talk the too. second one, like if we, yeah. if more of us have seen a single movie then we're going to talk about it more because we right. give it time for each person to weigh in. That's true. Where if it's an outlier, it's like, this was that movie. And everyone's like, yeah, it sounds great. Cool. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. That was me talking about Ultraman for a few minutes. <laughs> Just dead silence, which might happen later today. <laughs> I don't uh, know. So Maybe. I guess my question is. Next year, do we want to like cut that time in half and just do top fives, or do we want to like just keep it rolling and just keep the time getting wider and wider? I personally think that top fives would be. I would. I think I would prefer that yeah. because I think it gives everybody more time to like rewatch the movies that like I didn't rewatch every single movie that was on my top ten. Um, and then it gives us more time to watch everybody else's picks, although I guess we don't necessarily know what they are. Um, and sometimes, like, when we have a lot of movies that we're talking about, it does, like, tend to just be a sentence or two about it. You know, I don't know. If we really get into the meat of the ones that we loved, I think that that's, that's a good... I think we need to ask our listeners. Let's <laughs> not a poll. <laughs> this yeah. is not for them. This is for us. Because I was looking at the metrics of like our most popular episodes last year, mm-hmm. and it was like us talking about Detour and 1940s cool. noir. It was us talking about Ernst Lubitsch and like 1930s comedies. Nice. The m- more recent stuff was not the most popular. Yeah. Like episodes I'm for the listeners. To try something. This different. is just for us. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we might have reached our nexus for that format. Like the three-hour. Mm-hmm barrier has been broken we've done all we can it's time to retool (laughs) the way i feel about that is it's sort of like how you like a scientific experiment let's try it out if it's awesome we move on with it if it's not then we go okay we're gonna go back to the old format for the next year maybe a rule should be if the podcast itself is longer than any of the films that we talk (laughs) about then we've kind of crossed the rubicon and we need to Mm. re-evaluate so this is our punishment for not um exalting killers of the flower Flower moon Moon. and oppenheimer like every other podcast in existence (laughs) uh speaking of which today's episode is about the honorable mentions we did not mention last Mm -hmm. episode 
And also the honorable mentions that did not make our top 10 list, which I published on the website this week. I've gotten zero reactions from the people in this room. So <laughs> I want to know how y'all feel about the top 10 that we selected. I, I'm very happy yeah. about it. I feel like this is like stupid because Barbie was pretty high on my list. But I was like, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> which is wild going. yeah and i i think it's like the same thing that happened with everything everywhere all at once last year it's like it wasn't my number one but i think it was on pretty much everybody's yes. list and that's why which is like there is consensus there you know we all love this film that should be the number one movie it was in most people's top fives it was yeah. nobody's number one right and as a result we are stumping for the top grossing yeah, film of 2023 right. <laughs> if i would have watched poor things and loved it as much as i think i'm gonna love yeah. it do you think that would have made poor things our uh if boomer one? had submitted his list after he watched poor things and definitely loved it uh it's timing yes that made barbie yeah. our yeah. number one right yeah barbie came out in the Barbie's summer it had too. time for everyone to watch it Poor Things yeah. is the studio withholding like, it's still in the theaters, all right? of its best movies mm-hmm. for the last week of the year so that yeah. it makes lists like this. And that gamble did not pay off for them. Yeah. But apart from that, I, I mean, I was stoked that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was on there. Yeah, that was pretty I mean, cool. I think I I think the list overall was great. And it makes sense that Barbie was number one. You know, Poor Things was number three. So it was up there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I loved all of those movies. Yeah, I wonder if in the future you can just do an executive decision and just be like, nope, actually Poor Things is number one. <laughs> it's not Barbie, even though by our own um, method, Barbie is one. No, it's But it's, it's not. a democracy. We have no, to- I think it's- <laughs> You need an editorial <laughs> yeah. touch. Yeah, I think- it, <laughs> Maybe not a dictatorship, but uh, Brandon's running the show here. (laughs) I'm going to make more of a commitment to watch more like theatrical releases later Mm -hmm. on in the year. Because I think what happens is like, I just get caught up in other shit, like Like holidays. your family for the holidays. (laughs) Yeah. But it's like, I just, after, you know, hearing, like listening, re-listening to the episode, we're talking about our top and I'm like, man, there's some movies that you guys all saw that really, y'all really liked. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, I probably would have liked them too. And I'm like, I just, you know, I dip out in that like last quarter of the year from like going to the theater. Yeah. I mean, I, like I watched Anatomy of Fall of a Fall like a week after we did the podcast. And I was like, yeah, that so probably would have been in the yeah. top 10. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a good one. Okay. We have to get back into our regular routine eventually, <laughs> even though we're going to drag out this best of 2023 conversation longer. Mm. Let's get back to our normal icebreaker. What have y'all been watching lately? I haven't been I haven't been watching that much. I do want to talk about a TV show that James and I have been watching, mm. which is has already kind of had its buzz, but I just we just finished it and I really loved it. So we watched The Curse, uh, which is the TV show. Um, it's kind of like the brainchild of Benny Safdie and Nathan Fielder. Uh, it stars Emma Stone and Nathan as a couple that are um, pitching a show called Fliplanthropy in <laughs> there, which is a real, a real mouthful, um, set in their uh, neighborhood in uh, New Mexico called Española. And they're basically like flipping these homes where people like are being evicted uh, and turning them into energy efficient homes for um, very wealthy people to move in. And it's framed as this like, 
eco-friendly sustainability um, HGTV show centered also on uh, like the indigenous communities. But there's like um, there's a lot of tension because Emma Stone is seemingly very philanthropic, philanthropic, but her family like owns a series of like apartments that I mean, they're basically slum lords. She's like a very rich white liberal woman who's um, kind of removed from the local community but wants to be a part of it um, and kind of can't see past her privilege. And then Nathan plays his, this like very um, socially awkward kind of like possessive husband who like just loves her to death and is also kind of suffocating her. And then they have this manipulative producer played by um, Benny Safdie who's like running the show. So the show follows um, their the first season, like the creation of the first season of that show. And uh, Nathan is cursed by this little girl very early on. And then he's kind of like, it gets stuck in his head that this curse has kind of been, uh, is continuing to follow him. It's really tense uh, and strange and really uncomfortable. It definitely feels like a Safdie Brothers production, but um, Benny Safdie's brother isn't involved. Um, it's an A24 production, and I just thought it was like a really, really interesting, great series of television. It's like 10 episodes uh, on Showtime, so I would really recommend and it. Sounds cool. I loved it, too. I- I'm not going to say anything about what happens. The final episode, you have to see. You just have to see it to believe it, and I'll just leave it at that. Ooh. Yeah. It's really one of the most, yeah. You you got to see it. I'm already paying for Paramount, so I'm just waiting for it to show up there instead of like Paramount with Showtime, which mm-hmm. is like an extra mm, I got you. few dollars every month. So I will get there eventually. I just love this like sicko mode version of Emma Stone's career now where she's yeah. just working with like weirdo auteurs and like making cursed media that like mm-hmm. gets under your skin in like the weirdest way. Yeah. And it, it's it feels like a little bit of because it was apparently a very collaborative effort and Emma Stone is like she acts the shit out of that part. She's mm-hmm. great, but it does have that softy touch with like a lot of telephoto lenses and like slow zooms mm-hmm. and just, it kind of feels like a documentary, but it's sort of uncomfortable and weird. And then you got the Nathan Fielder, you know, very similar to like the rehearsal. Yeah. So it's just like all these different things that I like in one show. And it's, it's got some pretty, pretty great stuff in there yeah and emma stone is fantastic um nathan fielder uh is playing like an actual part in this show like you know normally he plays kind of an exaggerated version of himself like very stiff or he is playing a character but it's like a a pretty consistent personality so he has a little bit of that in this show but he has these moments like these emotional outbursts that I've never seen from him before and that are like very uncomfortable. Like he'll have these uh, fits of rage when someone is like insulting his wife or insulting him. And it feels like really boiling and poisonous and scary. It's so strange. So like, I don't know what he's tapping into, but it like those moments are really like affecting and compelling. So I would definitely uh, recommend that. Uh, Brittany, what have you been watching? So I have been watching a couple of movies. Like what I'm trying to do is go through like 
my DVD collection. Because I do have like a lot of DVDs where it's like, oh, these are movies I want to watch. But I don't want to use my space to store them. So if it's like a one and done, I want to be able to watch it and move on and like bring it to Goodwill or something. So that's been what I've been doing. Um, Nothing really to rave about. Like, I think I watched like Bogus. Bogus. Oh, my God. I, I watched, watched that. Bo- I watched Bogus recently. Like, oh, my God. I yeah. have no idea what Bogus is. What is Bogus? Haley Joel Osment Haley and Joel Gerard Osment. Depardieu. <laughs> yeah, Gerard Depardieu is his imaginary friend who's a French magician. Yeah. So it's like Drop Dead Fred, but with Gerard Depardieu? Kind of. Kind of. Right. And Whoopi yeah. Goldberg. And Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there's not much to say about I, it. I mean, I, when I was scrolling, right? I, I guess it was on Tubi or something. I was like, what? It's like, a, what is this movie? movie? Why does this exist? Yeah. I forgot there was a time when Gerard Depardieu like, tried to make an American <laughs> stab at it. Uh-huh. I don't know if it really worked out. Didn't work. But that that's a strange movie. Yeah. It's just a weird vibe. Pretty sentimental. Yeah. It's sad because, like, Angel <laughs> Osment's mom dies. Yeah. And it's like, holy crap. But, like, she's got this, like, circus family. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know. It was okay. Yeah. It's it's totally okay. <laughs> the opening scene is like kind of beautiful. It's this really oh, surreal. Yeah, this uh the it opens with like a circus magician act and it's like very colorfully lit. There like there's fog yeah. and there's this woman floating in a in a ring and it's really surreal and beautiful yeah. and that is like does it not cool. represent yeah, the majority of the movie. Yeah, that got me hyped for the movie, and then the yeah. rest of it is <laughs> right. like it just drops. Kind um, of a just a sweet like lifetime <laughs> movie sort of feel to it. Yeah, but. so it's more gooby than Drop Dead Fred. It's not like wacky funny. Mm, no, it's no. not wacky funny. Gerard Depardieu, I don't know. I don't like him. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I, I don't think I'm a fan. <laughs> um, Why is he so hulking big in clown man? <laughs> but on the flip side, I did watch a movie that blew my mind uh big night the stanley tucci movie oh yeah oh my god Mm -hmm. like i have not watched this i've like i've heard of it really never watched it and then i don't know i was like cleaning my apartment i'm like let me put something on i'm like what about that movie big night is this like a restaurant drama Mm -hmm. okay i kind of remember directed by stanley tucci starring stanley Mm -hmm. tucci and it's like there are these two it takes place on the jersey shore and it's um these two brothers italian brothers who own this restaurant and I don't know. There's something about like nine, like '90s movies that take place at Italian restaurants mm-hmm. that make me feel so cozy. Other um, examples, please. Uh, what about Mystic Pizza? Like Mystic Pizza, <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. But there are these two brothers. It's like the '50s, and one brother is very much like I'm going to make Italian food as an Italian person. I'm not going to Americanize my food for all these people in the Jersey Shore. And the other brother is more Stanley Tucci's, old Stanley Tucci, Tony Shalhoub. Stanley Tucci's character is like, no, like, I want this restaurant to work. I want to live the American dream. And the restaurant is like going under. And there is a successful restaurateur that they get like a loan from. And then he's like, you know what? Like, I know Louis Prima. And I'm going to get Louis Prima to come and dine at your restaurant. It's going to put you guys on the map. So like there's this promise of Louis Prima coming for this big night. And like this man puts his whole ass into this like menu and you just watch him like make these amazing Italian dishes and all these people are invited. And I don't want to spoil anything, but like the ending scene in this movie is like one of the most like 
like one of the best scenes ever mm-hmm. and you've mm-hmm. seen it mm-hmm. like just this very simplistic like omelet is made and shared among brothers and he's not a brother but mark anthony is in this movie <laughs> and he eats the omelet too <laughs> so oh man it's so good yeah. Sounds like a great movie about food it's a good oh my god mm-hmm. probably the best movie i've seen about food there's like some kind of thing. I don't know if you remember the name of it, but it's this dish where I swear to you, it's like it's the timpano. Yes, the drum. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, what is this? We made actually. My stepmom is uh, French and Italian, Ooh. and we made timpano with watching the movie. It was very wow. yeah. So it's this like three D experience. I am yeah, so, so jealous right it now. It has like layers of meat and sauce and like eggs and all of this stuff, and you you like line like a bowl with dough and then you put it on top you um, cover it with dough so it's like this big drum like timpano means drum and then you it's like this huge like cake meat cake almost oh I mean, it's gotta be over a foot tall yeah it's huge and there's like in there like rice in it too and potatoes yeah. mm-hmm. and meat like mm. anything you could think of yeah. it's all in this thing and it oh yeah i can't Great. believe you made it it's amazing yeah it was it was a very fun and it's a really fun like group activity because it takes a long time and you're building the layers together and then when you cut into it it's like it's so beautiful i'm gonna keep mentioning this till it comes out but y'all are gonna love taste of things because it feels like it was made in the 90s and it's just like yeah loving shots of like food like that being made for hours yeah (laughs) okay i'm into it yeah but yeah that's what i've been up to in the movie world (laughs) james what have you been watching so since we were watching The Curse, I wanted to watch the Softy Brothers' first film uh, called Heaven Knows What. Mm-hmm. And I feel so conflicted about it because kind of knowing the the backstory, I guess they were in the Diamond District in New York kind of doing research for uncut gems. And they found this struggling you know, ex-heroin addict and they kind of struck up a friendship. And she was writing her memoir and they were like, we want you to finish your memoir. We will pay you to finish it. And once it's done, we want to turn it into a film. And we want you to play yourself. And so the movie is set in New York City where she is playing a version of herself who is actively like addicted to heroin. And she's in a super toxic relationship. And she's surrounded by all these kind of just bad dudes who are all, you know, addicted to heroin and they're stealing and they're conning and she just keeps falling in this endless like downward spiral and this like really toxic relationship. But the film is harrowing and it's really real, like as gritty and real as it gets. Like you're just hanging out with like, and there's only like one professional actor. Everyone else is like legit, like street people from New York. So it has like a real authentic thing, but I really struggle with like, is this exploitation? Like Mm. from scene to scene, it was just bouncing in my head. Like, like, man, this is real and raw and this is truly her story. But man, this is like kind of fucked up. Do we need this? And then I'll be like, no, we need stories about, you know, people at the bottom of society who aren't necessarily good people or make, you know, it was just a really conflicting experience, but definitely one of the most real like drug addict, movies I've ever seen. And it's got the softy brother, the same kind of techniques they would use in good times and stuff like that to create tension. It's the same, but you're actually like zooming in on real addicts who are like 
treating each other like shit and fighting and it's super stressful and sounds intense. Yeah. It's pretty, it was pretty intense. I not necessarily something I would recommend, but I'm glad I saw it just to kind of, cause that's the only feature link softy brother film I hadn't seen yet. Hmm. Uh, but it was pretty jacked up. Yeah. They're so good at creating like that wire of tension and distress. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm very excited to see what they continue to do. Yeah, I like their stuff. Uh, a did lot. y'all see that they split up officially? <gasps> yeah, oh, yeah no! they're, going, they're going solo. Because Benny wants to be more of an actor now. Yeah, oh. it was like in The Curse. He was in that um, yeah. Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret movie last year. Which, oh, that was a great oh, He was just like a nice guy in it. He was in Oppenheimer, nice. too, apparently. Yeah, he was wow. in that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to see where their careers I hope go. They could still be brothers. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- those two dudes <laughs> love each other. From what I, I watched, a lot of interviews with them, they just like, and they're just in a room and just yeah. talking movies. There's a good viral tweet about them disassembling their bunk beds while crying. Tearfully. <laughs> 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 But um, the movie I really wanted to talk about that fucking blew me away. I, I've been wanting to watch more of uh, John Sayles' films, oh, yeah. which I think y'all have talked about some of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote Alligator, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he started writing for Alligator. Roger Corman, and then I, I had not seen any of his films. But he, he also did like, Passion Fish, too. So. Yeah. And the, oh, that was a good movie. The, the Ronin, A Secret of Ronin-ish? Yeah. The yeah. one about the seal. Ooh, the Selfies. Yeah. Great film. Yeah. That's um, a good movie. The one I decided to start with was uh, Lone Star from 1996. Oh. Um, with Chris Cooper. It takes place in like El Paso, right? Yeah. It's on this like Mexican-Texas border town. And uh, they just it kind of starts like a murder mystery. They find this skeleton in the desert with like a sheriff's badge next to it and the sheriff from like two generations before who was like a monster and probably like murdered innocent people went missing and the sheriff that took over for him who is chris cooper's dad is sort of a beloved town hero they're gonna erect this statue to him but chris cooper kind of is investigating like what happened to the sheriff who killed him and in doing so kind of uncovers secrets in the town and relationships that aren't quite what you think they are uh Brittany, if you've seen it, you know Cheers. what i'm talking about okay i'm so excited right now because i could not for the life of me think of the name of this damn movie <laughs> we watched it in a college class i had like back in 2010 yeah and i was thinking about it particularly the relationship twist huh yeah. And I'm like, what the hell is that movie? And I couldn't re- remember the name of any of the actors, mm. but Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper's And in then it. the woman Matthew who's, McConaughey's in it for a little bit. Yeah. Elizabeth Pena. That's her. I'm like, I kept I couldn't remember her name, but she's the only person I could visualize. And I was like, so, you know, trying to be internet detective. Chris Christopherson <laughs> is like the evil sheriff. Yes. But this movie fucking blew me away because the narrative in this thing is so complex. Like in the sense you have three different like kind of generations. You've got multiple families that live in this town. And he really covers like the black experience in this town, the mm-hmm. Hispanic, um, illegal and legal immigrants. You have like a romance angle with Chris Cooper and all these intersecting relationships and histories. And as I'm watching this thing and like thinking about the script, like how would I go about like relaying this story? And it was just like masterful the way every scene was exactly 
what it needed to be to move the narrative mm-hmm. along. The dialogue was interesting, and there was like layers of context and meaning to like every line of dialogue. And and then yeah, you have some like really gnarly not not even twists. They just like add depth to yeah. the story towards the end. And like by the end of it, I was like, that was a fucking good movie. Like in the sense of writing, acting, directing, editing the music. I was like, that's a five-star masterpiece. And yeah. it's the first thing I've seen from John Sayles. And I'm like, I got to see more. Didn't he start as like a fiction, like prose writer before he got into screenwriting? Mm. I think so. It yeah. just sounds true to how you're describing yeah. his like methodical, like narrative right, very style. Very well plotted. Yeah. It's well, yeah. Just like we, me and Hannah were talking about this before, but he does this thing with like dialogue where a character will say a piece of dialogue and you realize there's like, a hidden layer of meaning and then there's like a layer beneath that like you know he he goes to the mayor in one scene who's fishing and he's you know asking him about this crime that took place all these years ago and he's kind of telling him leave it alone and as chris cooper's walking away the guy's like yeah you know what's kind of like silly about fishing all this equipment all these boats and these rods and then to what catch like a little fish it's almost not worth it right and like every scene has dialogue like that where like a character says something you realize they're actually talking about something much deeper Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah, and the way it just like flows seamlessly through different timelines and through characters relationship i was like i loved it i really loved it yeah i was working i think while you were watching it because you had the day off and james would just like stop for a minute and just be like wow Wow. <laughs> this is great. This no, is a not, great movie. Not like, and it's not showy in any way. It's yeah. just like masterfully told, just great storytelling. Um, that's what really blew me away by it. So, yeah, if you, if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a while, I could really recommend it. Um, and Definitely. I need to see more of his films. Want to watch it again? Like, I remember it was for um, an African American studies class that. It was, uh, we watched it and like we all had to write like a paper on it because our professor was like, this isn't, you know, you wouldn't suspect it, but it does a really good job of representing like how race relations exist in America. Yeah. And how histories form and how stories get told about your history and how, you know, the stories we say about other people in our lives. It's just like very forgot about it. Good stuff. So anyway, Brandon, what have you been watching? Uh, a bunch of great stuff. I'm not going to go through all of it, obviously, but uh, I saw one stone cold masterpiece since the last time we talked, Whoa. which was uh, Tiarema, uh, also known as Theorem, from 1968, hmm. directed by Pierre Paolo Pasolini. Oh, uh, cool. Okay. Who did um, Solo, which is probably mm-hmm. his most famous movie, and his last one, and probably the one that got him killed. Got him killed, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this was from earlier in his career, and it's also blasphemous. I'm bringing it up because I think Hannah and James would particularly like it, and also because um, it relates to Britney's favorite movie of last year, Saltburn. And that <laughs> it is kind of like the art house, like Boonwellian version of Saltburn. Ooh, cool! So there's Love this that. like aristocratic family who gets this telegram announcing the arrival of a mysterious man. And Terrence Stamp shows up, the, the British actor oh, who was I in. I love Terrence uh, Stamp. I know him mostly as the drag queen from Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm-hmm. There, there's a great movie he was in called The Hit that I absolutely love. Oh, mm. yeah. Um, but anyway, he he's a very good actor. So he arrives as this just suave, beautiful young man 
because uh, it's the 60s, and methodically, one by one, just seduces and has sex with every single person in the house. Cool. And yeah, that's like the Barry Keoghan and um, mm-hmm. Saltburn allegory there. He's like, not actually pursuing each of them. He's just there and like they're magnetically drawn to him. Yeah. And there's this kind of like methodical thing that happens where they'll just like stare at his crotch and then all of a sudden they're in bed with him. <laughs> and he just kind of obliges Very cool. in this sort of like angelic way. Like they all have this epiphany from being mm. in bed with him. Um, it's not as salacious or pornographic as some of the scenes in Saltburn. It's mm-hmm. like, it, it's just like um, shocking because you know, the everyone from the maid and the daughter and the mother to the dad and the son all have the same sexual experience with this man. And then a second telegraph arrives and says that he has to leave. And he <laughs> just leaves. So this is kind of the Jacob Elordi part of it. From I'm going to keep referring this to Saltburn, which I'm sure <laughs> is blasphemous it itself uh, for people who love this movie. But he leaves and it just leaves this like hollowed out empty feeling in the house where no one knows what to do now that they've had this ecstatic sexual experience and it's gone forever. What did they do with themselves? And this is when it becomes very Benwellian and abstract. Like each person has a different experience with how to move on with their lives. And it transforms them in these ways that are like either supernatural or very allegorical. So like the sun turns into this artist who just becomes this like, abstract painter and has this sort of like artistic epiphany and like can't express the loss that he's feeling without this like angelic figure in his life anymore but because he can't quite reach that ideal he starts making amazing art like trying to reach for it uh the maid becomes this religious idol for a small town where she was raised and like kind of transcends uh the her human form and like becomes even more of an angelic figure for the people around her. Uh, The mother starts like kind of cruising for more casual sex. And she kind of becomes like an old gay man, like picking up these young hustlers off the side of the road. Uh, The father owns a factory and he's the one where all the money comes from, obviously, because they're like kind of upper middle class. Um, I said aristocratic. They're not like landed gentry. They're just like rich. Um, And he starts sort of like stripping the power that he has at his factory and like giving that power to the workers So it's like this religious allegory, kind of, but it's not possible to pin any particular meaning on what Terrence Stamp is in this movie, because he's like either demonic or angelic. It's not really clear, but through his like sexual ecstatic transformative presence, everyone has a different reaction to him and it kind of picks apart all these different political and religious institutions Mm. from all these different Mm -hmm. angles and it's just really funny and beautiful and shocking and blasphemous. And yeah, it was just like a fucking so fantastic cool. film. So good. Yeah. I'm maybe making it sound more straightforward, entertaining than it actually is. Like if you, if you went in like, uh, I'm very excited right now. Expecting to not watch, ruin this high. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like salt burn and that it's like a, you know, a music video fan yeah. cam edit. It's yeah. like very slow and artsy and largely silent. There's not a lot of like actual dialogue in it. But if you stick with it, the payoff is like so good. Cool. I love movies where there's like one individual that like everyone gets drawn to yeah. for bizarre reasons. It's super fun whenever everyone gets drawn to someone because they want to sleep with them. Yes. And like yeah. everyone, you know, like I, there's something about that that I find so freaking cool. That is like the core of this film. Yeah, and then wow. what happens when that person just goes away suddenly and they all don't know what to do with themselves? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and yeah, it really reaches this like religious ecstasy through cool, that. Cool. Uh, and the other one I'm mentioning because uh, we've tracked the Wildwood film series at uh, Britannia mm-hmm. before. Um, and I just want to mention that it has moved to the broad, which is much closer to my house. Uh, and I left, cool. even though the city's been frozen all week, to go see their maiden voyage at the Broad Street Theater. Uh, they played Down by Law from 1986, a movie that I thought I was ambivalent towards because I don't really care about Jim Jaramusch very much. That's why I was surprised that like you... Well, obviously, you, you know, you watch whatever, but I'm like, I, I remember you not being a big Jim Jaramusch fan. I find that his work is like very just cool kid posturing uh-huh. and that he has all these resources on hand, but he has this like Gen X slacker attitude where like he could do whatever he wants, but instead it's like, look how cool I am for not trying. Mm. And especially when he like gets these like large casts of like celebrities together with like these slick production values and then does nothing with it. It's just people hanging out. I get like actually mad at him for like wasting all this opportunity. Yeah, like that was that cigarette, coffee and cigarettes. Coffee and cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah, How do you that sit was like that. Tom Waits and Iggy Pop down at like a table and have nothing interesting for them to say for like yeah. five minutes? Like infuriating waste of talent. And for some reason, I remembered Down by Law being one that I admired or like appreciated more than most of his work. And then I realized what it was uh, rewatching again in the theater is that it is that like slacker. Hangout movie that like classic Jarmusch, no wave filmmaking until Roberto Benigni enters the frame, and I was like, oh yeah, I have a defective gene that makes me find Roberto Benigni the funniest person alive, which came up when we watched his uh, newest Pinocchio movie. Pinocchio, yeah. So the movie is John Lurie and Tom Waits like kind of out alpha mailing each other uh, in New Orleans. Uh, one is like uh, WWOZ style radio DJ, and the other is like a street pimp. Uh, kind of this like suave alpha male character and they both end up in prison and um, are just trying to out tough guy each other and become like the top dog in their little prison cell and then Roberto Benigni arrives as the third prisoner and he's just like a classic Italian clown he's like if Harpo Marx was like super loud you know like he just like delivers rapid fire Italian dialogue at like top volume and then when he tries to speak in English he only knows these like idioms that don't quite fit the scenario and every line out of his mouth had me like howling with laughter. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's why I love this movie. It's because I love Roberto Benigni, um, which is probably not a great uh, critical stance to like double down on, but he is so funny and entertaining and sweet and cute in this <laughs> and uh, had the crowd laughing. And yeah, a lot of people cite this as like the best movie ever filmed in New Orleans. And I always kind of rolled my eyes at that because I kind of picture Cat Tom- people. Yeah, well, Cat People is my favorite, the Schrader mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. But like Tom Waits with a little pork pie hat, like riding around drunk in an old Cadillac down the French Quarter streets. Yeah. I'm like, we do not need more like hipsters to move down here trying to emulate that. Right. <laughs> we do need more people here who are as entertaining as Roberto Benigni, though. <laughs> we need more like life of the party, absolute clowns, um, you know, lighting up the stage. He is Agreed. so funny in it. Cool. It might even be his like best performance because he's not directing himself so someone mm-hmm. is reeling him in a little bit <laughs> uh it is funny because like the two alpha male guys are like really bragging about themselves a lot and he doesn't he's very like humble mm-hmm. but he's also like the only one who's actually committed crimes and wasn't framed for it he's the only one who can like hunt uh because they break out of jail and have to like walk through the swamps to get to freedom mm-hmm. like he actually like 
is able to achieve things that they can't. He's the only one who has sex in the movie. Well, these two guys are like bickering between themselves. Uh, so it's a really funny kind of takedown of that hipster posturing uh, through this like clown character. Yeah. Cool. But we can't talk about classic cinema all day. We have to like finally wrap up the best movies of 2023. We have to stick with the now for one more episode. <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk about honorable mentions that did not make our group top 10 list and were not mentioned on our individual lists last episode, which was three mm-hmm. hours, and yet <laughs> there's still more to say. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. I should say that the script is written by myself and uh, Jonathan Raymond and uh, John, who uh, and I, who have live in a community of artists in Portland, and ourselves getting to our table every day to work and cutting out what the other distractions of life are, you know, that was sort of a theme we wanted to hit on of, um, yeah, what's the, what's the routine and, um, what are the things that are knocking at your door to, uh, distract you from that process? So fire is one of the last movies that I saw last year, uh, it was streaming on, Criterion. It was the newest film by Christian Petzold, who did Phoenix. One of the first movies we talked about on the podcast. Oh, was it? Like the very first episode. Cool. Yeah. I like. Yeah, and I like Phoenix a lot. Um, what's the other? How Transit. You, Transit. Yeah. Um, which I, which I haven't seen, but and I liked Undina from him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that one either, but I don't know. I I like what I've seen. Um, this film is kind of a character study about a very unlikable misanthropic asshole, which I think your enjoyment of this movie kind of rests on like how much you can identify with that sort of character. Um, (laughs) But so Leon and his friend Felix are going on a vacation at Felix's mom's kind of seaside home. And it is a vacation, but they're also going there to work. Leon's been working on his novel. Um, Felix is a photographer, also working on a project. And they get there, and the place is a a mess. Obviously, someone else has been staying there, and they find out that a friend of Felix's mother, um, a woman by the name of Nadia, is staying there as well. And they're kind of annoyed at first because there's wine everywhere there's food left out she has loud sex at night but leon is sort of fascinated by her and it's a little creepy that goes into her room and looks around looks through her book um but eventually they meet and then it becomes sort of just this kind of hangout film for a while where he is claiming that he has to work on his book and they're trying to get him to go swimming or go enjoy their time and he's very focused on his novel that he has to write but really he's fucking around he's not doing any work from what i can see and he essentially uses his work as a way to not interact with the people around him um his friend felix who seems like a very nice guy um very open kind of strikes up a relationship with the guy that Nadia was sleeping with at first. And the whole big chunk of the film is him just sort of observing these kind of artistic types around him, actually experiencing life, interacting with life. 
and he is sort of sitting on the sidelines and he's kind of mad about it. And he's kind of questioning, like, is he the artist that he thinks he is? Because his novel is shit. Club, Club sandwich. sandwich. Club Sandwich. Yeah. Club Sandwich. It's really bad. There's a great scene where... That's the title, by the way. Yeah, the title yeah. of the novel. The title is Club Sandwich. There's a great scene where his his agent comes out and he reads him some um, a passage from the book and it's just so bad. It's yeah. really bad. And he comes to find out that Nadia is actually getting her PhD in literature, which he never bothered to ask. And she basically tells him his book is shit. And while all this is going on, while he's sort of struggling with his own insecurities and uh, kind of shunning the experiences around him, there's a literal wildfire happening in the background, which is sort of how the whole film is framed is that just out, Outside of his view, the flames are getting closer and closer and closer until by the end of the film, something very tragic happens for two characters who are literally engulfed in these flames. And a little pig. And the pig. That was hard to watch. That was hard to watch. Which is the only like really striking visual thing that like most of it's almost like those Bergman movies where they're all just kind of hanging around talking at Mm -hmm. these like picnic tables and stuff. Yeah. The little, almost like an animatronic pig that like yeah. burns to death in front of him is like the biggest like visual swing the movie takes. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of watches it die. It's it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. And, yeah, and the images of the pigs running ah. on fire. Um, but the image of the two lovers who I, I don't want to spoil who they are, but two lovers who end up holding each other and kind of engulfed by these flames and burned literally together. So- I guess what I really, really liked about this movie, um, this character of Leon, he sucks. He really sucks. And I think what I connected with was like, at my worst, I kind of get where he's coming Mm -hmm. from. And it really bothered me. Like this movie (laughs) got under my skin because the way he was behaving and the way he was like shutting himself out and not interacting and just sort of, having like this judgmental posture and not like actually experiencing the world around him and then being angry about it. Like I got it. I got who this guy is and it fucking bothered me, but I feel like because it got under my skin so much, it did something effective in kind of communicating what this kind of guy is. And again, depending on how much you can stomach like an upper you know, middle-class white guy and his like asshole behavior. But I I thought by the end, it actually became something more transcendent and beautiful, especially with the images of the lovers kind of seared together by these flames and this metaphor of like, you can't really be an artist or a writer or anything if you don't experience life. And sometimes you got to get close to the flames, so to speak. And those flames can be love or passion or anything and it can burn you but you have to like experience life to be able to put anything into your art uh i thought that was like very moving and uh yeah i just i don't know i cringed i yelled at this guy you're being such a <laughs> yeah, dick he gave yeah. off like big incel energy mm-hmm. and then i'm like god it's fucking dude he's like i'm sorry i don't have time to be silly i have to go work on club sandwich <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, they're all having fun, and it's 
but he then he wasn't but same thing it's like i'm like oh my god do i do leon shit and i do where everyone's like chill the fuck out and come and look at all these like the glowing sea at night bioluminescent sea right yeah Yeah. just like open yourself up to experiences yeah right yeah like he continuously like rejects people's invitations to like oh come to the sea with me or like come take a swim like my work won't allow it meanwhile he's just kind of like puttering and it's like everybody around him has an artistic spirit and they're also just like enjoying each other's company and enjoying life and he's shutting himself off from the thing that can give him like fuel for his art yeah because they're all actually achieving what he pretends he's doing right his uh friend actually completes a photography project yeah. mm-hmm. while he's out living. Right. The um the woman Nadia, she actually is like doing scholarship between her shifts selling ice cream down at the pier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like, uh, You're not an ice cream girl? And yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, like having <laughs> sex and like yeah. making dinner. Like you can do I, it all. You can right. do it all. Like yeah. this idea like <laughs> as an artist I have to hold myself yeah. right. in my room. And like in fact like you actually have to do that stuff sometimes yes. to actually have something to you have to have a world have, view right exactly and he's yes. like like his friend comes to him with his photography project idea like oh i'm gonna photograph people looking at the sea and then um photograph behind them like to show their profile looking out at the ocean and he like hates his friend hates this idea and just you know Shuts takes it down. it down but um felix is like so like kind of joyful and um and like exploratory and everybody else is really supportive and then the photographs that he makes are really beautiful it's like but he applies this kind of like self-loathing self-critical attitude to the people around him and cuts off those relationships yeah i think like the brilliant thing about this movie is that if you are like someone with an art project you know you're like a frustrated creative person which every artist is you see yourself as that character no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where like in life, everyone sees themselves as that person. They see everyone else is having fun, but they can't figure it out. Like everyone's playing uh, night tennis or yeah. night badminton with those light up rackets. So and fun. I'm the one stuck inside not fucking and not having fun. <laughs> yeah. like, everyone sees themselves as the Leon character, which is like in real life, if this was like more of like a documentary, every single person would have those moments i think like Mm -hmm. he'd be the felix guy would be in his room looking through the thousands of photographs he had taken on the beach of different people like is this anything am i just wasting my time on this like Mm. everyone has those moments alone where you're frustrated with your project you're not really sure of it you don't know how to complete it or edit it in anything cohesive Mm -hmm. but we see the movie through this one character's Mm -hmm. eyes and so everything is amplified to make him feel more and more isolated where he just achieves absolutely nothing. He never has like a full conversation with any person. The most he does is just beat himself up. So like yeah. when he shuts someone down or pushes them away, as soon as they're out of frame, he's like, I'm such an asshole. What is wrong <laughs> well, with that, me? And that's yeah. the one sort of redeemable thing. Like he is self-aware. Yes. He's like, yeah. man, I really am a jerk. Mm-hmm. I fucked. And he, he will go and apologize. I think... The first time I watched it, a big problem I had was with the Nadia character sort of being too forgiving of his behavior. But when I watched it again, I think it's just that she's a really solid, confident, good person Mm -hmm. who sees that like he's struggling with, you know, wrestling with his own ego. And she's like, treats him with kindness because 
she sees something in him of value, but I don't know that she's a stronger person than I would be. Cause I would just tell us to like, you're a fucking asshole. I also think that she's a little bit of a cliche because the movie's filtered through his perspective so much, mm, especially yeah. by the end where we're basically seeing a live action play of his novel that he writes instead of club sandwich. So like these characters become archetypes and like no one's actually behaving the way a human being would respond to him. It's like all through his perspective. So like the two lovers are off having fun and Nadia is this like kind of higher brow version of him. I don't want to say like a manic pixie dream girl, but not too far off of that. Mm-hmm. She's like a male fantasy That's sort of what it that felt he's like, like creating. Yeah. Um, one thing we haven't touched on yet though is what I thought the hook of the movie was going to be which is this encroaching climate change disaster. And like, how do you get work done when like the world is like ending around you? And that does make you grumpy and frustrated. Uh, Like knowing that the fires are like just out of frame or like, um, you know, here, like the city's frozen over. I I didn't get any writing done this week. But I thought like his character was so self-absorbed that he, it's like he wasn't even aware of what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's this moment where, so he's just found out that Nadia is a literary scholar mm-hmm. and um, they're getting ready to like drink some wine and then ash starts falling out of yeah. the sky and it's clear that like the the fire is actually encroaching on the area where they're staying and so like uh, Felix and David his uh, new lover like go in a tractor and then uh, Nadia is panicking and he comes out and he's like why didn't you tell me that you were getting you, you were studying literature? And it's like that's what's on his mind. Right. He, it's like he doesn't even see the ash, and she's like, "Well, you, you never asked me." But also, like, this—it's just not the appropriate time. Like, what's for a burn? It. Yeah, like the level of self-absorption mm-hmm. shutting out like these real-world practical disasters. And, and same thing at the hospital when he doesn't realize that yeah. his agent is like in the cancer. Like, he just doesn't see it. <laughs> right. And, like, that that's terrible. Like, you're so into your own shit that you can't see outside of yourself. And she confronts him on that. She's yeah. like, do you notice anything <laughs> happening <laughs> ever? Yeah. Right. And the answer is he only notices stuff when he's alone. Like, he notices the pig dying in front of him. Because yeah. no one else was there for him to, like, blame his problems on. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like... Sometimes you might have this project, but at the end of the day, like, is it worth, like, letting it take over your life so that you fucking miss all this, like, serious shit and you start dismissing other people because it's the only thing yeah. you're obsessing over? Yeah. Yeah, the the climate, the, like, wildfire thing is a very interesting framing device because mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's like, should you ignore the outside world and just focus on your thing or should you, like try to see the outside world and all its complexity and like work that into your art. Need that harmony. Because by the end, like he does write something that seems meaningful, but it's because of this fucked up tragedy (laughs) that happens that includes the climate change angle. So, I mean, he was so stuck in his own thing and he was creating shit, but like, look at the world around you. Like there's stories everywhere, tragic and set, you know, so, I, don't know, I, I thought it had a lot of interesting things to say about creating art. And it starts off with a pretty smart move, too, where like the very first thing that happens is they're driving towards this getaway mm-hmm. and the engine of their car is like failing. 
and instead of paying attention to it, Leon cranks the radio up so he can't hear the engine yeah. breaking. Yeah. He's like, well, if I can't hear it, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. And then they end up like having to walk miles and miles because <laughs> God, he like, ignored the real issue. Which, yeah. which like that was reminiscent of my first car that I had. <laughs> it, the engine blew up because I just never put in oil. <laughs> <laughs> the oil light was on and I was just like, I don't know. Uh, that's just a cool ignore light. That. Figure it out. <laughs> I think that happened to me too, honestly. <laughs> that's like very similar. <laughs> really bad about taking care of my first couple cars. But yeah, I don't know. Like I just thought it was a really interesting character study. I did see some criticism that this is kind of like Euro kind of mid like Euros, festival filler festival filler stuff <laughs> that was my assumption going in i thought i was gonna be pretty bored because most of christian petzold's movies don't really hit me that hard i kind of expected to like like this one the least because at least with like phoenix there's this kind of like soaring melodrama to mm-hmm. it yeah and dina has uh it's basically like the subtle art house version of the lore like it's like this retelling of um little mermaid in a like modern setting and it's all about like berlin architecture and stuff like that uh so you know that has like a supernatural element to it i thought this like kind of writer's retreat just four people like figuring out their interpersonal drama would be his least interesting movie but the character is just so infuriating that you can't have like a calm reaction to him yeah pay attention i guess no i that that was kind of my reaction to the movie too like god damn it i hate this guy and (laughs) I'm part of the. I like, hate myself. It made myself it a little bit funny though. Like I like laughed a lot yeah. in this movie, especially with like this like never ending goulash situation. I'm like, are oh, y'all gonna funny. eat anything yeah. else? It's get just those, always there. Get those hotel leftovers. She's yeah. traveling by bike with like a colostomy bag full of goulash. <laughs> it's keeps so much. Everywhere. It's <laughs> spilling all over the place, and then like she drains it from like the bag into this gigantic container, and yeah. she's like, "Does anybody want goulash?" And then like a day will pass by. She's like, oh, so goulash again? I don't know. I laughed a lot for that. It's funny. Um, And he's always the butt of the joke, too. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, surprisingly funny. So my pick is also about an artist uh, trying to get their work done. Um, I chose Showing Up, directed by Kelly Reichardt. Uh, It stars Michelle Williams as a sculptor living in Oregon, in Portland, Uh, She works as an administrative assistant in the Oregon um, College of Arts and Crafts, which is where she graduated. Um, She is opening a show soon. She her sculptures are um, these women kind of in in motion. So either dancing or like walking or kind of in like poses of like anguish. Um, they're these very like kind of gnarled handworked sculptures. Uh, so she's she's working on these. She's trying to open her show amidst all of her um, various problems in her personal life. Uh, she has kind of a rivalry with her friend and landlord who's played by Hong Chow, who is also an artist. She does like these really intricate, a large-scale textile work. She has two shows opening. Which is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard to deal with. But she does have time to install a tire swing, but not enough time to get the hot water fixed in uh, Michelle Williams' uh, house. So stressful. Um, Also, Michelle Williams is kind of like uh, Lizzie. She's kind of dowdy, like wears a lot of like beige linen and Crocs. Um, She's a little like brusque, uh, a little like emotionally distant. And uh, 
her landlord friend Joe is this like very charismatic, like beautiful, funky, hip um, artist. It's landlord propaganda. <laughs> like the landlord's really cool and like reasonable. Right, yeah. Oh, I'll get back to and you. The I'm this on grumpy it. cat lady shut in. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she's. So all Lizzie wants to do is like get her show, like work on her sculptures for her show. Uh, and she's dealing with like her mother, who's also uh, kind of her boss. Uh, I didn't realize until like 15 minutes into their conversation that they were related. They have a very emotionally distant relationship. Um, her dad has like these hippies kind of freeloading in his house. He, <laughs> he is also a sculptor. Like her whole family is artists. Uh, her brother um, is possibly having a mental health crisis he's like really shut in and she's really the only one that is concerned about him but she's like trying to just carve away time to get her work done um, with all of these competing needs Uh, in the midst of that her cat mauls a pigeon uh, (laughs) which she kind of like throws outside joe finds the pigeon and kind of like shuffles off the responsibility onto Lizzie and Lizzie kind of like adopts this bird uh, a little reluctantly at first, but then it's like clearly she starts to grow an affinity for it. Um, It's a very sweet little bird, but she like takes it to the vet. Uh, She itemizes the cost of the vet bill, but eventually it's like she really wants to spend time with the bird. So the film is like cutting between her working on these sculptures and like trying to carve out time for her work and maintain like the boundaries uh, for working and also like taking care of the people around her. Um, I liked this film the first time I saw it. I think I liked it even more the second time. I just had so much compassion for her because everybody in her life is like, I mean, they're just really caught up in their own lives and she's showing up for all of them like she really does care about each person in her life even if she's like a little reluctant to do that and she also cares like deeply about her art um she has this tenderness for each of these little figurines like there's one scene where she's fixing the arms of one of these women and she like breaks off the arm and apologizes and then reattaches it and I think it like really beautifully shows this version of an artist that isn't like glamorous where people aren't gushing over your work but you're just kind of coming in and dedicating yourself to it every day because it's important to you like all of these people in the uh, school that she works in like really love Joe's like big kind of cellular uh, textile string sculptures. And and Joe has this like um, community of people around her that really gush about her work and support her. But Lizzie is just like, she's maintaining these understated sculptures that she really like loves and cares for. Um, so I don't know. I just, I thought it was a really like lovely film about art and and being an artist and like what it takes to like maintain that creativity while still like holding space for the people in your life. I watched this after a fire and it was like 
the sort of there was a similarity in both of the movies mm-hmm. to me where it's yeah. like this one oh, person yeah. who's like taking their art seriously and everyone around them is like you know i'm making a tire swing <laughs> um very nonchalant or like oh yeah it looks like the kiln burned this a little bit huh, here you go and yeah she's like what like she comes off as being so tense yeah um and everyone around her is like loosey-goosey but she just cares so much yeah. about what she does and like the people in her life even though she does it in a, in a different way than most yeah um that yeah i think everyone has been there at some point where you're like why is no one taking this shit seriously well i think the difference is that she's actually a good person yeah she's not the guy leon in a fire is like not really a a good person at this point i disagree with this reading very strongly really what i think she's a difficult person and that everyone else is not reacting to her lashing out at them Maybe maybe her mom is also a difficult person, but like the way she lashes out at her landlord for throwing a party, even though she's sad next door, like the way she lashes out at her dad for like having these loafers around when like there's no problem really, like she is just as frustrating of a character as Leon. It's just wow. the movie's nicer, and it's not about her like character difficulties. It's about how artist communities like this are like the mm-hmm. only place in the world that makes room for difficult people. And like mm-hmm. at, at any point someone could cut her off and be like, I can't deal with you. You are too much. And like emotionally supporting you is like too much of my day. I have other things I should be doing but, with but my not time. Having hot water and your landlord's like making a tire swing, <laughs> like dude, and throwing my parties. fucking hot water. But she's not the only difficult person is what I'm saying. Everyone has things that like, that other people have to tolerate. There's like certain ways that her landlord friend makes accommodations for her and vice versa. Yeah. She's not getting to the hot water soon enough, but she's also like not making a lot of money off of that rent. She actually does have more work to do. And honestly, her work is better. Like Lizzie's sculptures are not very impressive in any way whatsoever. I disagree with that. I mean, (laughs) and it's hard to say in a film, like, you know, I don't know what the intention was. I thought her sculptures were Fine. Well, it is like the work of a real sculptor, yeah, in like based out of Oregon. And okay, I mean, <laughs> they're fine. I think it's like a movie to me about like mediocre art and about like how it doesn't matter how good what you're doing is. Like, it just matters that you're doing it, and like that is one of the bet. Like, it's one of the most valuable things you could do with your life on Earth is like to make art while you have the means to do it. And like the movie celebrates that and it celebrates the artistic community's space it makes for difficult people, which I think goes down to Lizzie too. Like the way that she adopts this wounded bird, the way that she makes time for her brother when he's having these psychotic breaks and no yeah. one else has the tolerance for it. Even like other people in her family feel like he's too much to actually deal with. And it's like, oh, I checked in with him a few months ago. He's fine. And she's like, no, he's not fine. He's like digging these huge holes in the backyard and calling them (laughs) earthworks because the earth is talking to him through mouth holes. Like there's just something about how frustrating and difficult she is that felt very similar to Leon's character in that movie in A Fire. It's just that showing up has like a nicer view of like the arts. And it's like not about isolation. It's more about like, how the people will embrace you even though you're difficult with like regardless kind of, of your personality mm-hmm. right that's an interesting it's not about take. beating her up for being difficult that's about like i just felt like everybody was dismissive of her but that's I think how it's she sees I was it going through her 
I don't think that her art is mediocre. I think that there is something like really tender and beautiful about those like sculptures that she's communicating emotionally. And I mean, maybe like, I mean, you could definitely disagree with that. But it's like nobody else in the movie is really paying attention to anybody else except for like Hong Chow has this relationship with um Andre Benjamin, but but everybody is like she is the thread that is connecting all of these people. Like she's coming to check in on her father and brings him flowers. And like she has opinions about the people that are in his house. Um, she like is kind of tender towards the mother as much as she can be. Like they have a very difficult relationship. She's checking in on her brother. You know, Hong Chao adopts this bird and then, like, essentially can't take care of it. And, like, she- I disagree with that. She takes over that project out of her hands. Yeah, but, <laughs> like, when the bird is the most vulnerable, she's like, well, I can't, like, I can't take care of this. Will you do this for me? And then as it's getting better, like, she can, no, and I agree that she takes it over, but, like, she does. Like when there is a being or a person that is in her periphery, I think that she is serious about paying attention to them. And I think that's a type of attention that nobody else has in the film. But I agree that she is like a very difficult person. And they're also difficult people. Yeah. So she has to make space for them too. But I, I, think, I think the movie is very honest about her like personality. Yeah. Parts. And yeah, like, that's her most Leon moment, the bird situation, where, like, Hong Chao's like, I'm going to go work on my sculptures for a bit. Can you watch this bird today? And maybe that's too much of an ask. Like, maybe that's, like, a ditzy, like, intrusion on her day. But her outsized reaction to it is like, I got to work in the studio all day. This is really just going to throw off my work. And it's like, no, it's just a bird in a box. Like, you just have to, like, make sure your cat doesn't swat. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal. Her orange but boy. But at least she's willing to do something for other people. You know, I mean, like, constantly I was connecting this movie to a fire. Mm -hmm. And that, like, frustration of artist types that have to be around, like, actual free spirits and how annoying those people can be. Like, that's kind of what I felt in this movie with her landlord. (laughs) Like, she's an actual free spirit. And it's like, dude, get on my hot water. How annoying do you think it is to be a free spirit and you have this grump who's like... Not letting you enjoy your tire swing, you know? <laughs> well, if, your tire if, swing, I need hot water. Right. I felt... I need hot water. I, You're my landlord. I think I might be like her. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm paying too. you money. Go fix I it. Go fix it. I stop think being, she is the most stop being relatable lazy. character. Or y'all, get, out my, get away from my dad. Well, it's like, like Leon in a fire. It's like, your buddy's asking you to go swim. Yeah. Go swim. But go she's creating good... problems out of nothing, though, sometimes. Like... Well, I think it's also she, like, she is a complicated person that I think has a good heart. I, I don't think that's the same. Yeah, it's a much nicer movie than a fire. Fire is mean. Well, compared Kelly Reichardt makes. I don't know. She I just like, has a lot of stress. Yeah, like, and that's like how she films. handles it. Yeah, I I think it's basically I have a lot of compassion for this character because I see somebody who does not know how to be like easygoing and make yes. easy relationships with people. Type. <laughs> right, but she I don't know. I I just think I think I like her more than Leon because she is actually like 
working on the thing that she, she is passionate about. She, she would has that her agent was in the cancer and ward. Yes. Yeah. And she notice. contributes to like a bunch of right. people's Not lives. Not that oblivious. Too. I like, agree with way. all of this. I think the movie is just nice. Like it's like everyone is as self-absorbed as Leon and as yeah. absorbed in their mm-hmm. own work and their own. Sh- Everyone's got a fucking show coming up. It's not her. Everyone has a show coming yeah. up. So like when she sneaks her last piece into the kiln and it has to like go in this corner that's a little too close oh. to the fire, but he makes room for it and it comes out a little wonky. Like it's the end of the world for her. But from the other guy's perspective, he has so much work to do and he did her a favor by finding space in the kiln. And it's like all these people need to make accommodations for each other because they're all self-absorbed. Just need to chill and out. the movie is like very kind about that. And it's like it's a very like warm feeling where like what else what other space is there in the world for people like this? Like this is how people end up homeless is like no one looks in after you. No one takes care of you. No one checks in on you. People just like leave you to dig holes in your backyard until you stop paying your bank note and your house gets seized and you end up living on the street. And the only people that will like allow you any space inside are like shelters and the library. Like without this little community of people looking in after each other, they'd all be fucked. (laughs) But yeah, the movie's a little honest about the ways that she's not accommodating for everyone else, but also about the ways that she does show up as well. It's, it's not like an allegory the way that Leon is where you're supposed to like hate the worst things about yourself it's like how wonderful is it that there is this like space for people to do this work that i I think is mediocre (laughs) every day um and like be able to get by doing it um i would love to be able to just make this podcast every day and like write and draw my stupid little doodles that aren't very good and like just do that for a living and be around people being artsy all the time to academia i should move to fucking portland i guess yeah (laughs) These damn artist movies. (laughs) (laughs) The comparison to a fire is, I think, I don't know. It makes sense, but man, those characters are coming from a totally different, and the movies are coming from a totally different uh, headspace. It doesn't feel right to even compare them, but you can't help it because they're kind of about Mm -hmm. the similar, like the artist self-absorption. I think they're both honest about that self-absorption. It's just like one has a very like positive feeling about it. And the other one has a very negative one. Yeah. I like that Kelly Reichardt's movies always are just like quietly nice, nice and pleasant. Yeah. And that's good. I mean, I know I don't think you're like a huge fan, but like, I feel the same about all her movies. They're fine. First cow (laughs) and a certain, certain women. I really, really like the, an old joy. Wendy and Lucy. That one's pretty good. Like just nice, pleasant, Maybe complicated people just trying to make it through this life. That's enough for me sometimes. Like, <laughs> this movie scratched that itch in a way that her movies always do. And the bonds that she's tracking are pretty important bonds. Like, Wendy and Lucy is just about a lady who loves her dog a lot and doesn't have a lot else in the world besides her dog. So it's easy to like relate to that. And this one, it's easy to relate to like being a frustrated artist. Who blames their like creative blocks on other people when it's really just you? I don't know that I even thought it was about a creative block. Like she yeah. has a vision that she is seeing through that is not Im- impressive to other people that she cares like very deeply about. Like there's 
when she's actually looking at her work, there isn't a moment except for when she burns that stat the one sculpture where she's like, oh, this isn't good, you know. And I think that that is also inspiring, you know, and it's it's not impressive, but I like just love that she's cultivated this love for herself and she's found a way to try to connect with other people even though it's extremely difficult for her like I I think I just feel defensive of her even though I know that she's like a difficult self-absorbed person like I really admire people that try to make connections when it is not easy for them to do that I identify with her as well. It's just like not in a way that makes me feel good. <laughs> and, and especially like when the, the thing gets burned and like she's yeah. at her show and she's kind of, she has this opportunity to show off for like kind of this big time artist who's visiting from New York. And instead of just like saying like, here's my work, like, you know, have a look, let it speak for itself. Immediately her brain goes to the one flaw that yeah. she had no control over, which was the one piece that was too close to the kiln and she's like i'm sorry that one didn't come out the way it was supposed to like the best piece in the collection is imperfect because you know it burned in a way i didn't like it and the other artists are like well at this point you kind of just have to own it right and that's like the quality that i i don't have either that like confidence to be like going with the flow like letting things happen naturally yeah. the way they're supposed to that's just being a human being right. man it's difficult yeah. it is so hard. hard and that's that's what i think i it's like watching her do the thing anyway and actually you know it's like it's not perfect but she has the show it's like that allowed me to give myself compassion in a way that like a fire does not like when I watch a fire I'm like oh god you know I do not like these things about myself I mean but I I love both of those movies in my mind college date our 19 year old son this summer we're looking for an attractive kind and intelligent woman early to mid 20s in exchange we'll give you a buick regal clean rust free 40k miles date is in quotes you're actually considering this i've had a one night stand before and gotten zero buick regals for it i had sex once because i didn't want to commute in the morning i've had sex with a guy once to get out of playing settlers of Catan. i had sex with a guy once on a first date because i thought he was going to kill me jesus get with me now babe She's talking about you, dumbass. Uh, believe it or not, the debates of the merits of uh, <laughs> Michelle uh, Michelle Williams's art in uh, showing up continued after I hit the stop button. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't debate it forever because we have much more um, serious, so serious philosophical films to discuss. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes, my my selection is the very um, serious, life changing <laughs> film um, called No Hard Feelings. That came out uh, in 2023. I, I don't know. Like, I don't remember the last time that I watched like a new release comedy that I laughed a bunch for. And I feel like in, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago, shit like this movie would come out. Like there'd be like 10 of them in a year. Um, Like just good, like raunchy comedies that are really funny. 
And there's been like this lull where I just feel like there's really not been a lot of like funny, stupid, fun comedy movies coming out. And that's kind of why I avoided watching this for a little bit. When it came out, I'm like, oh, that looks like ridiculous. I'm not going to like it. And then I'm like, well, let me let me give it a shot. I laughed the whole time. Um, and it's directed by uh, Gene Sapinski, um, who has a particular flavor of comedy that I really like. So he also, I mean, he's writer and director on this one, but did like year one, um, Bad Teacher, um, directed a bunch of like office episodes. So someone who's got a great sense of humor doing a movie with Jennifer Lawrence, who I always find to be hilarious, like regardless if she's like in a movie, just like her personality in general, like she's, she's kind of a funny gal. Um, and yeah, this movie is her living in this town, um, sort of this, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a famous vacation spot in like sort of New York. Yeah. It's like Shit, what is Long it? Island type. Yeah. East coast. So she's, um, sort of this person who's like born and raised in this like vacation community, um, that depends on tourism a lot and is going through it a ton of places like that are going through now is like is being gentrified. So your property tax is tripling and it's to the point where she has a home. Like her mother died. She lives in this home and she can't afford the property tax, which is a very common thing nowadays. And people are like, shit, I can't afford to stay in the home that I own. So I'm gonna have to sell it and move. But she's refusing to. Um, and her car gets impounded. And she is like, well, I do Uber. That's my car. All I do is work at this bar. And now I have to rollerblade here. That's my mode of transportation. I need a vehicle. And um, there's a Craigslist ad for this old ass Buick. And essentially it's like, hey, if you date our 19 year old son, you can have this car. Date in quotes. Right. Date, date him hard. <laughs> I'm going to date yeah. him so hard. Date, date him hard. Brains out. Um, <laughs> so they're, the parents are like, okay, like we're going to attract a college girl who's like, I need a car for college or like someone young. And this girl's like 30, which ma they make it seem like she's ancient in this movie, which I think is part of the humor. And there's this 19 year old who is the most stressed out, like 19 year old boy who has like helicopter parents that track everything he does. Um, is not a functioning adult acts like he's like 13 and she basically is trying to sort of flirty fish him into a relationship where she approaches him, tries to make it seem like this natural occurrence of like, I think you're hot and I want to have sex with you right now. Um, and then there's just like a bunch of goofy shit that happens that kind of prevents them from having sex over and over again. Cause that's the end goal is the parents are like, I want my son to get laid before he goes to college. Um, he is not layable for a multitude of reasons, but yeah, there's just a bunch of funny shit that happens throughout. It does have some heart to it. Like I felt bad for her. Cause I'm like, Oh, it sucks that you have to like be stressed out about this house thing. And like, working as a waitress isn't enough but yeah i thought this was fucking hilarious i miss movies that are funny on this level that isn't afraid to cross certain boundaries like i i think yeah. the, the issue with this is people are like she's 30 and he's 19 and i'm like but she's not like it's the way they go about the subject that didn't feel like dirty to well, me you were talking about like know. you know i've heard a lot of 
people talk about, oh, it reminds me of like 90s comedies or it reminds me of like 80s comedies Mm -hmm. or it reminds me of like everyone seems to pick like a different time period that it's like reminiscent of. And I think what it really boils down to is like it's the raunchy R rated, not PC comedy that people are sort of longing for. And we saw it in the theater with like kind of a packed house with my mom and stepdad. Oh, nice. And we, yeah. And it was great. It was one of the first movies we watched last Mm -hmm. year. And like, it was fun. It just felt fun and kind of, you know, a relief to see something a little bit risque. Yeah. uh, In a group of people who were all laughing, you know, Jennifer Lawrence is very committed with the, the nude. Yeah. Where she beats up a bunch of teenagers on the stage. We have to pause on that scene. Do we? What's going on there? Like, Obviously, it's her acting. She's nude. Like, it's her body. It's not like they put yeah. her face yeah. on an extra's yeah. body. That scene still looks weird, though. Like, I don't know if they, like, shot it on a closed location and, like, edited out stuff in the background. Well, it looks like that fake night. Yeah. Thing. Like, it was night yeah. for day. Day for night. It's just, like, day weird. Night, yeah. It's just weird that, like, they chose to make a big deal about the fact that she did her own, like, nude fight scene stunts, but then also made it look uncanny valley like unreal at the it made same time. it there was like yeah there was like some of the movements like when she's like you know hitting the kids that stole her clothes and like her tits are swinging right. and i'm like it looks almost like cgi a little yeah, bit yeah that scene was strange there's like a sheen over it i'm yeah. sure there's something over it yeah and i'm sure they were like body. you know they didn't show every detail so there was uh, some yeah. probably yeah. some like blurring or I, something that didn't i yeah. just i just appreciated that she really went for it to even <laughs> yeah, put yourself funny. out there yeah. like that especially you know she's had like nudes leak and I, people are already yeah. oogling she over gets, her like, body in the twat yeah too, to be like funny. fuck you i'm gonna like suplex a teenager <laughs> right. i thought that i like that really endeared me to her as an actress yeah like, but yeah it's that kind of go for broke raunchy let's like yeah cross some lines but it doesn't cross things to where i think it's upsetting and i think that's why no. this was such a no, good no and it's still comedy. pretty safe it's a crowd pleaser and it has a 20 minute sentimental ending that just goes on and on yeah and on. yeah and that that what <laughs> that friends. was kind of my issue with it the first time and watching it again it kind of came back to her where it was like when it's trying to be funny and just mm-hmm. it's very funny everything that is trying to be funny is funny yeah and then it has to it felt modern in a sense that a lot of comedies have to tack on some sort of sentimental we have to like have a feel-good moment like a dramatic kind of moment and that doesn't feel like 80s comedies Mm -hmm. like when we rewatch like caddyshack and stuff Mm -hmm. it's just like funny all the way through or trying to be funny this is like funny when it's funny and then very sentimental and sweet but that makes it more modern for me but the sweet stuff really worked especially the scene where he's playing man eater on the piano <laughs> that's like, very cool that's a I'm fucking real- sweet scene like they yeah have, they have really good chemistry i don't know like i bought into their relationship same like she starts to care about him as an individual yeah and you could really see that where it's like she's like man like, this is a good person so, in yeah, a I was shitty con- situation. I was conflicted. I was like, man, it's really funny, you know, the comedic por- points, but also, mm-hmm. like, you know, it has heart to it, but that's sort of getting in the way of mm-hmm. the jokes. Yeah, I've never wished that a Farley Brothers movie was half an hour longer. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Just, yeah, like, make tr- the characters' dynamics work better. It's not mm-hmm. really why I'm there. Yeah, yeah I, I was lost in the last, like, 
like the last 20 minutes lost me a little bit but that man eater scene like that's a sweet yeah i thought the movie was very funny and that was i don't know it was legitimately moving to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's describe this scene. Uh, yeah. Earlier in the movie, she takes him to a bar, and the song Maneater comes on the radio, and he says that song used to scare him as a kid. Uh, he like misunderstood the lyrics of Maneater not being about this like femme fatale sex freak, mm-hmm. but instead being about a monster who literally <laughs> eats men because his brain is just not wired to think about sex. And then later in the film... They're in a restaurant together, and she pushes him to like put himself out there and perform on the piano in front of this like restaurant full of people who, in a small town, he knows practically everyone in that room. And he finally gets up the courage to play music for the first time in front of any audience ever. Like he he hides his music in his bedroom usually, and he whips out this like very tender mm-hmm. song, uh, this very tender cover of Man Eater, and sings all the lyrics very like passionately. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence is hearing things that she hates about herself yeah. in the lyrics of the song, but also you're emotional because this kid's like being very vulnerable and like finally coming out of a show for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of sentimentality to like pull off in the middle of this like sex comedy and it works very well. Yeah. And he, the actor I think has done uh, musicals before, so he has a great kid. voice and the progression of that song is, you know, it's, he starts out, his voice is a little shaky and then he's, yeah. you know growing confidence over the and he i mean he just sounds great and it's it's like she's hearing her behaviors in the lyrics and he's also singing kind of about her in a beautiful like his voice is beautiful so it's like this kind of compassionate moment too like when you're seeing somebody and and kind of accepting who they are and also like she's realizing how extremely talented he really is and like seeing this new and then, i love right afterwards too when a girl age appropriate right approaches like what the fuck is this bitch yes she has yeah. to shut <laughs> it down right because she needs that car it's still an economic aspect of the yeah. relationship but i i don't know like that scene in particular i know pure time i like oh it's a throwback to those 80s raunchy whatever but that's a throwback to like john hughes that's what it felt to me like yeah this like yeah. really deep sentimentality has been kind of missing from like that combined with the raunchy comedy is a nice aesthetic that Feel i kind of miss thing. i was also thinking about it in terms of never been kissed because we just watched it mm, yeah but just like the oh. um, willingness of jennifer lawrence to like embarrass herself on screen here yeah. it feels very julia gulia like yeah the Josie Grossi. Josie Grossi. I'm sorry. Where's Julia Gulia from? <laughs> Julia Wedding Gullia. singer. Wedding singer. Okay. Is that another Drew right. Barrymore yeah, movie? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Josie Grossi. No, you're fine. Did like, not how dare you, insults. <laughs> Never been kissed. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's just something about like the indignity of bimbofying yourself that she makes very funny in this movie where like she's trying to come across as a sexy put together mm-hmm. adult that's like seducing this child but every way that she makes herself sexier and more like traditionally feminine just makes her like this ridiculous inhuman creature to the point where he's like terrified of her right. yeah. that he's being kidnapped <laughs> right. well, and the, her. the generational comedy stuff was very funny like when she, like, she goes to like that prom party yeah. Yeah. and they're like, who the fuck's this old woman coming through here with this and ridiculous dress? And they're all filming dress? her and they're like, and why is she are, bullying? You, are you homophobic? Like, <laughs> well, that's, that's the core of the humor, right? Is like millennials are these like economically 
stunted adults who like can't actually like sustain themselves in the current economy true and then gen x kids are never going to leave home because the economy is so bad so they've like just never developed past this like childhood phase and they're not like ready to go out in the world yeah and like they even bring out like the kind of boomer joke about how gen z kids don't even know how hoses work so like when he maces her in the face he can't turn on the hose to like water her eyes down because he's like so incompetent the spigot. <laughs> so like, that's like the elevator pitch of the movie is like, how are Gen Z and millennial people different? Yeah. And he's like also like Gen Z spoiled kid who's like on the opposite end of like where she is. Yeah. When it comes to like her economic status and like her parents are the people that are like, or his parents, are the people who are kind of like ruining her situation in Montauk. That's where it is. Yeah. Montauk. Montauk. Couldn't remember. So that was kind of funny where it's like you can't even like do these like minor things, but it's kind of layered because, yeah, it is his his generation, right. but also yeah, they're super rich and he never had to really do anything and his parents did everything right. for him. Yeah, they're kind of ruining it for everyone. They're like exactly. pushing out the community and then also sheltering their children. They're the worst, but Matthew Broderick's hair is amazing. <laughs> so weird. He's got this like long, he looks gray, great. greasy hair. I love it. The thing about these like generational differences, though, is they're kind of like bullshit and arbitrary, and like you're always just looking at other generations of people and seeing things you don't like um, as a group. When like individually, they're still just people. Yeah, yeah. And I saw things about myself in both of these characters that I did not like about myself. <laughs> so like I was supposed to be seeing this like us versus them, millennial versus Gen Z kids, you know, dynamic, and instead I was seeing like. This sort of like timid, not sure how to grow up or what to do with themselves in public. Mm-hmm. Things with this this nineteen year old, I was like, I still act like that. And I'm in my well into my thirties. <laughs> I'm almost forty years old, and I'm still socially awkward in that exact same way. Yeah. And then you know Jennifer Lawrence as this like poster child for like dirtbag millennial <laughs> um, slovenly behavior. I was like, oh, that's me too. You know, like this like horn dog drunk who like also doesn't know how to behave in public but in a very different way i did love the um is that her sister or her co i think it's a friend a friend yeah her husband character so funny just like go into the ocean right that's how i feel about myself all the time into the sea go into the sea get away from us adults are talking from everyone (laughs) no business being around actual adults yeah but i I will say, like, Jennifer Lawrence uh, is very good with physical comedy mm-hmm. when she's getting maced in the face. And she does, I don't know, these weird guttural noises <laughs> that I, I think are really funny. And even oh, when man. she's walking up the stairs uh, in her rollerblades, <laughs> yeah. like, she is a funny individual and she yeah. really, like, hams it up. Yeah, in she's this movie. pretty perfect. I don't remember what she says, but there's a scene where she's at that party and she kicks the door in and, like, she puts her head in the room. It's like she, a shining spoon. Yeah. And she's, like, yeah. crawling on all the doors. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. I also really liked the, the lead uh, kid, too. I thought he was great. He was, yeah. like, very good, like, shy, vulnerable teen, like, moving into a more confident young adult like i thought that he did a great great job he was very good although supporting people are funny i just don't think there's anybody that could have played her character that would have made this movie yeah, as good i don't absolutely. know there's something specifically millennial about her mm-hmm. and yeah. the way she acts on red carpets like the way she's like i'd rather be eating a cheeseburger than be here right now it's just very yeah. like almost cliche like representation of that generation there was a while where she was doing that a lot and i'm like god that's so obnoxious but then like 
I don't know. I found out she like really likes Real Housewives. Yeah. <laughs> now I like <laughs> Okay, I love you now. <laughs> well, I'm kind of tired of talking about people that I see my worst qualities in, which has been every single movie so far. <laughs> I want to get to um, a movie where you can see no real life, <laughs> nothing recognizable about human behavior. <laughs> uh, Shin Kamen Rider, which was the second movie in the Shin Japan Heroes Universe series of films that I saw in theaters last year. Uh, one of the earliest movies I saw in theaters in 2023 was Shin Ultraman, which I talked about in the last episode. Um, the thing about this universe of films, quote unquote, is that it is only tied together when they're selling action figures. There are commercials oh where Shin Ultraman, Shin Kamen Rider, Shin Godzilla, and the... Um, mecha robots or whatever mm-hmm. from neon genesis evangelion i'll share the screen and like run around shooting lasers uh and it's just supposed to make you want to buy toys i think that is exactly the level of importance narratively that superheroes deserve uh watching shin kamen rider in particular reminded me of tuning into power rangers as a kid and how there is like this week-to-week storyline with the characters I did not have a regular enough schedule where I would watch episodes in order. I would just catch them when I could. So like it didn't really matter where they were in the storyline with like Rita Repulsa or there's like a sequence where the Green Ranger becomes a White Ranger through some like great trauma. I didn't watch those in order. I had no idea what was going on. You're just kind of like jumping into the mm-hmm. continued adventures of the Power Rangers or the X-Men or Batman. You kind of have a vague idea of what their deal is. But you don't really know what the week-to-week storylines are. Shin Kamen Rider is... uh, The word Shin means new. So it's like a reboot of the Kamen Rider series from the 70s, which was the same style of filmmaking as Power Rangers. It's called Tokusatsu. It's special effects, quote-unquote, filmmaking. Most Americans would be familiar with Godzilla, I think, as like the biggest Tokusatsu property. Um, Week-to-week, this masked motorcycle-riding grasshopper superhero... He is an augmented being <laughs> who is half, half grasshopper and half human being, um, rides around on his motorcycle, defeating other monstrous creatures, the kind of things that would get beaten to death by the tobacco force and smoke right. causes coughing. <laughs> um, and this movie is a loving reboot of that series. It updates it a little bit by making the violence more extreme. Um, <laughs> oh my God. When Cayman Rider jumps off his little grasshopper motorcycle and um, kicks a villain to death. Uh, They explode in a goopy, (laughs) bloody mess all over the place. It's It's hyper-violent. Whenever people, like, throw darts at those paint balloons, that's exactly what it looks like. Just gallons of blood covering trees. Like Kill Bill style or Lady Snowblood. Just just fountains of blood (laughs) spraying everywhere. And yeah, this movie's kind of silly, like... It feels like you missed the first episode of the TV series and don't know where you are at first, where he's escaped from the lab that (laughs) augmented his body with grasshopper DNA uh, and created this like superhero. And he spends the rest of the movie defeating other bug people. Uh, My favorite is the bat. There's this like evil bat character who wants to create (laughs) a COVID-19 style bat virus to take over the world. Um, there's also this like dominatrix B that's really funny mm-hmm. or at least really cool. The scorpion, I guess is funnier. Uh, yeah. another dominatrix character who, um, talks a big game and is really good at like Instagram aesthetics, but immediately gets squashed. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, it's just like a continued adventures of this superhero as he like fights his way up the food chain to the final boss. Uh, maybe like no hard feelings uh, has too slow and sentimental of an ending because it ends up taking his story like more seriously than it should. It, it goes into like Christopher Nolan Batman style territory where it's like, I kind of miss when this was a fun cartoon <laughs> and not about your personal problems. Mm-hmm. But uh, the director, uh, Hideaki Anno, very famous for Neon Genesis in particular. Uh, I love the visual eye he brings to the series. He's been like the producer director that's held all these movies together. And he shoots it with this very dynamic, like Soderberghian visual style where like every angle is almost like he's framing his anime work as well, where it's like these drastic angles, multiple camera setups when they're not necessary. These like fisheye <laughs> lenses and like, just warped frames. Um, there are parts where it actually goes into animation. Like it, there's a couple 2d animation mm-hmm. sequences, but more importantly, the action becomes so chaotic and impossible to film that it just turns into CG multiple Cayman rider grasshopper men beating each other up in this like rapid s- sequences. And yeah, that's why it ended yeah. up being one of my favorite movies of the year is because I just thought it was like visually exciting and experimental and playing with CG in a way that we also praised in RRR where it was not trying to look real. It was mm-hmm. just like, what is the most ridiculous thing we can do with this technology? Let's let them fight in the sky. Yeah. Like that part felt yeah, they're like, like such an anime. Through the air, yeah. like, and they're fighting all the way to the ground. These like Man, giant pipes and jumping. stuff. Yeah. The just... gr- grasshopper <laughs> v grasshopper, just jumping and punching and <laughs> yes. jumping. So yeah, maybe this is my least favorite of the three movies between this and the Godzilla and Ultraman ones. But um, I do think it's like the most accessible. And they're all standalone. You don't have to watch any Mm -hmm. of them in any particular order. But if anyone's ever seen Batman or X-Men or any kind of like superhero about this like brooding guy who doesn't feel good about the violence he has to commit to like save the world, it's a very recognizable trope. Uh, All you have to do is appreciate the art style, which is this like grasshopper helmeted motorcyclist who like flies through the air and kicks people to death right like the story in here like i'm like okay i cannot keep up with it (laughs) like there's something about like there's a hell and then there's a spiritual realm and then there's like ai misinterpreted this like i didn't even touch the prana which is like the life force that That allows you to use the augmented bug form (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of funny how like a lot of layers detailed it is yeah (laughs) yes i think on purpose it was like very so i had never seen the uh the property that that this was you know adapted from but it just reminded me of like all the anime that i watched when i was a kid you know very like like goofy but also very earnest in like the you know the fighting and like you know you have those like uh the poses that characters do before they're gonna do an attack you know it's like super cheesy but just like i just love a show that is gonna give me like what is this weird bug thing gonna look like and what are they gonna (laughs) do and what about this next thing there's like also they're not all bugs you know there's no consistency the with that. It's like a there's bug. a bat there's a scorpion <laughs> there's one that's like half praying mantis half chameleon you know an it's insane just, design right it's just like totally bananas but i thought i thought it was super fun like i don't know i i love that kind of stuff i think you need to be on that level of like earnest cheese to appreciate it yeah if 
if it was over the top and silly in the same way that like smoking causes coughing was, I think it would be very exhausting. Yeah. And even Quentin Depew knew that. And like he does the tobacco right. force thing for like, what, 15, yeah. 20 minutes. <laughs> and then he goes into like a horror anthology. Yeah. This is like taking the tobacco force monsters seriously and just fully committing to that storyline yeah. uh, in a very episodic rhythm yeah. where he like defeats one baddie at a time until he gets to the biggest one of the bunch. Yeah. <laughs> I just, sorry. I just hated it. <laughs> but well, I think it's just like, like you said, the episodic nature of, and it, I think what it really was, this is my own personal thing was like, after watching Lone Star, which I started, <laughs> no, sir, like after watching a like movie with like, acting and story and care developed characters and a narrative to jump into something like this where i'm like watching someone else play a video game um that's boring as fuck to me like i think story is boring you think story is boring <laughs> yes i do wow. not care about narrative Put that on his tombstone this is a visual <laughs> is boring the art direction matters more than the narrative and i don't think the art direction was that good in it like that's re- that's gonna be a, d- a disagreement. Well, I remember a few of the like creature, like I like the one, the chameleon with the, <laughs> like, that was funny, and I agree with Brittany. I like the scene where they're like fighting in the like sky. Mm-hmm. What about the the close ups of the bat's face where he has like several like I like vagina the bat, folds. I like the bat <laughs> thing, but that's what the movie comes down to. Where we have to be like, I like the bat thing. I like the chameleon thing, but did I give a shit from one? Scene to the next about the narrative of his fights, the prana, for, the prawns, and the <laughs> all this exposition was boring. It was just garbage, and I was like tuned out, and I just wanted it to end. It is a little long. It's two hours. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> Shin Ultraman. The difference with that one is like it's shorter, and it actually has like a point. Like Ultraman kind of adopts humans as this like cute puppy that he wants to save what you were saying about shin ultraman like i don't mind the like the visual aesthetic like i think i would like it as long as it had not even a point but just like a narrative also that one builds to this like psychedelic break from reality that sounds great this one starts with its best visual stuff and then becomes maybe a little too sentimental and wrapped up in its story towards the end like the ending of this movie is not my favorite i, I love yeah. the first half particularly more yeah but that's why shit ultraman was in my top 10 and this was in my bottom 10 like i like them both i think this this and the um the godzilla movie we saw godzilla minus one oh. were like the most excite like the most exciting action movies of the year for me but that that's my point like the godzilla godzilla movie was so good it was visually exciting it told a beautiful story great act like I don't know. I guess I'm just like an old school guy, but like I watch something like that. I'm like, it's like watching your buddy play a video game and you're just bored out of your skull. Cause no, it didn't do anything for me. I mean, maybe I don't get like the history of it or I'm not an anime guy either. It's just not my bag at all. Yeah. I mean, and again, I, I haven't watched the original common writer, but it felt like a true like adaptation of that style of show. Like yeah. it was really like the extreme camera angles, the like, you know, ki- kind of like, and even the kind of melodramatic story over top, even though I think normally that isn't 
doesn't take up so much time. But like all of those shows have some bullshit. Like we have the Prana, whatever, and that yeah, yeah. is the life force. You and this guy out. is trying to. <laughs> yeah, it's like that is the kind of string that you have to put in the show to get to like the wasp and the like bat and this fight and that fight. And it's just kind of. So I think like from. It sounds like Shin Godzilla was like, like looked more polished. A uh, Godzilla minus one. Yeah, sorry, not, Godzilla which is not related one. to this. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, no, but, I'm sorry. But, uh, I could describe this forever. I'm sorry. There's <laughs> no, so many actual right a story. Well, you know, it's like, a different property. Like that yeah. one's rebooting the original Godzilla movie. This is re- rebooting a television show. Yeah. And even though I love the art direction on the Power Rangers or Super Sentai Force or whatever it was called originally, right. um, I don't necessarily want to sit down and watch six episodes of that in a row, right. which mm-hmm. is kind of what this is. Yeah, it, it was definitely a little too long, but it's like it it is like truthfully representing what it's trying to represent. But yeah. I think that's it was like perfect. pastiche, right? Like it's just. You don't think doing it's you don't thing, think it's adding anything new to it though. It's I don't, well, it's I don't know. So I never slick saw and modern. Yeah. Like I I don't know what to compare it to. Could you imagine this coming out fifty years ago? No, the way it looks. No, not the way it looks, but like it seems like it was really just for the fans to be like, look, here's a modern version of the thing we already did. I don't know if it's adding anything new to the conversation. Mm, the cinematography I, is so alive in this. The way he shoots it is so over the top. That doesn't over the top doesn't mean alive though. It does. It's me. so like stylistically like fired up. And I think there were some genuinely like horrifying moments too. Like watching everybody dissolve in like these enzyme melt. I mean, that was yeah. It's some cool moments. Yeah, and like a lot of anime, like Sailor Moon, has so much horror stuff in it and it's this like beautiful kind of cutesy anime but this was like like being able to see uh like that scene with the bat with like the million duplicates and (laughs) then he like kills them in one snap and they all collapse like that was genuinely terrifying so there is something interesting about like adapting and I don't know if it was live action. It was or, live action. Yeah. It was basically like Power Rangers yeah. before Power Rangers. Like I th- it had this like real like moody horror in some of the segments that I that I like. It also has that anime thing where like there's that cliche about anime where it starts off where like the credits and the opening are like fuck yeah, yeah. And then the credits at the end are like someone solemnly like <laughs> staring off into a beach at sunset. Right. Like this movie follows yeah. that pattern too. Yeah, I think like. I'm just missing the appreciation of it because I'm so unfamiliar with like everything around it where mm-hmm. like I could I was lost the moment it started <laughs> and I just yeah, thought I'm like, Fuck, maybe I'm stupid um, which could always be the case no that's no. the movie's fault no that's by design that's not okay but, yeah, but what? unless it's like so if you were a fan of Common Rider and you saw this you do you think you'd be able to like pick up where it's going but I saw it in I the theater I had no yeah. idea what was going on either and I walked in being like, did I miss something? I'm confused. Okay. And then five minutes later, they explain everything that's happening. But that's not by mistake. I think the movie's okay. supposed to replicate the feeling of like watching a TV show out of sequence. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's how people used gotcha. to experience this kind of property. Like, So you're just kind of lost as what's going on, but you know what's happening is really cool and it looks exciting. I know who Batman is well enough to join in Batman the Animated Series at episode 302 yeah. and kind of get the general gist, you know? Right. Like, 
All you really know, need to know about this guy is that he's got a, a helmet that kind of looks like a bug and he rides yeah. around in a motorcycle. And if he's beating ass. someone up, it's for a good reason. Yeah. You got to trust in his like reasoning. Yeah. But wow. then with the like very sincere, like melodrama towards the end. Well, you're supposed like, to care by then. I think I hate that. Like <laughs> I, oh my God. I'm supposed to care in this movie. Like, or it's funny how sincere it is. It's right. One of the well, two. Right. I don't know how it, it <laughs> but like the strings and it's like very melodrama. It's like, I don't know what's going on. I don't care about any of these people. So it just rings <laughs> totally false. Yeah, and like, I'm so empty scenes. on the inside <laughs> watching it play out. Like, at least when they're fighting in the sky and they're like punching each, you know, their brains in, like <laughs> that has like a visually exciting thing going on. But when it's like played for pure melodrama for characters I don't care about, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm checking my watch. Yeah, I think there are shows that have been able, like, I think that is baked into a lot of these types of shows, at least a little bit. There have been shows that are more successful in actually building, like, that feeling, but I just took it as, like, this is a part of it. It's just part of the genre. But it's like a successful homage to a bad show, it sounds like. It's not bad, it's just television. Like, television is episodic. It's supposed to be the continued adventures of blank. And it's supposed to be mm-hmm. like, you can join at any point, but it's always going to end with, how will Batman get out of this one? Tune in next week and find out. Like, it's supposed to, like, tease yeah, you along yeah. as an audience. You watch fucking professional wrestling. It's the same storytelling structure <laughs> yeah, but, but, where you can tune in any year and be like, I kind of know what Roman Reigns' deal medium. is. If they had a professional wrestling movie that ended on some cliffhanger... I- that never went anywhere, I'd be like, well, that sucked. But if they made a movie about a, prote- a professional wrestling feud and then kind of like did this structure, I'm trying to think I, I of like, I don't know. They're being true to what the original property was, maybe in a way that makes it a lesser film. And you're probably right about that. But there's just something like warmly nostalgic. I, I should have like recommended that y'all all watch this first thing in the morning with a big bowl of cereal. Uh, careful <laughs> right, not to no, wake no, up that's your parents. That's exactly what but, I was thinking like Saturday morning. Cartoons. Right. Yeah. No, no, no yeah. I used to watch Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I get what it's going, but for a over two hour film, uh, and maybe I'm just old and it just doesn't appeal to me. It anymore. even does it with the music too. It reminded me of the X-Men guitars. It's so small and yeah. canny sounding. God, the, it's so cheesy. That On purpose yeah. though. That yeah. guitar tone. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it perfectly captures yeah. it. This seems like the opposite of like what the Power Rangers movies that came out. Right. Those try to adapt those into like a feature an film. narrative, film. With an right. actual story where instead of just picking off of like the goofy stuff where, yeah, I guess like... It doesn't really matter what the content is sometimes if you're there for the razzle-dazzle. I'm always here for the fucking razzle-dazzle. I don't want to look at the parts of myself I don't like anymore. This is a guy that said he doesn't care about story. I don't. I think this is a visual medium. and It's, it's not best just a visual moments, medium. Like stuff like Ennis Main or something like that. Yeah. It can evoke big feelings and big ideas through pure imagery. I don't think this movie is as successful as like an art film like but that. But that film also mm-hmm. told the story. Does it? I don't think it sure does. It does. does it, like, it tells a story about the workers and the ancient history. No, it evokes it. ideas. It evokes feelings. This doesn't evoke... What does this evoke? I'm saying that the it's art... It's fun to look at. I'm Maybe saying that the like art... Well, it evokes fun. I had a fun time. I had a smile on my face. <laughs> I think the art direction is what's important here. And I think it is strong stuff and very exciting. Mm. I thought they all kind of looked the same. All the... Besides all the, the like, chameleon... 
Yeah, although that, the chameleon's I, the lamest one. It's I could so not stop laughing at the chameleon. Every time they show the chameleon. Yeah. Also, I do want to highlight one line from the chameleon praying mantis. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> the dialogue was the, terrible. We, but and that's part of it. Yeah. 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 That, uh, the like grasshopper 2.0 is successfully like unbrainwashed and then comes to fight the chameleon praying mantis and the chameleon <laughs> praying mantis says fresh out of the traitor oven that's, <laughs> that's funny great shit. Stuff. that's funny it's it did make me stuff. laugh how bad it was <laughs> it's like that then you enjoyed the movie right. the way that, it was meant to be enjoyed that was the reaction <laughs> that, that they was wanted. one line out of out of many yeah oh my god well another one was <laughs> yeah please the list. but I professor i punched people to death you know pretty great yeah that's mm. good it reminded so, me of upgrade too the way his like body would take oh, over yeah. and like dispense with yeah. people and he had no control over it so big like if you're gonna recommend this to someone have a sugary sweet with you have cereal have mm-hmm. a box of like sour preferably your parents are sleeping in the next room and you don't right. want to turn the tv up too right. loud because they'll get up and make you go to church or don't something brush your hair show. yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess be so high on drugs that you don't care about anything but just pure <laughs> visuals and you can tune drugs. out for over two hours and not think about or plot or character do what or... i did go to a theater uh oh, on the one man. week it was playing Everyone else in there seemed to be the biggest Shin, uh, biggest Kamen Rider fans <laughs> oh, I'm sure in the world. You're a Kamen Rider fan. It's like, and I was like, candy I had no you. idea what was going on and had the time of my life. It's a very fun experience. It's probably a very cool theatrical <laughs> experience. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I watched it during the day and I was like, it's so dark. Like, there's a lot of the yeah. movies like very dark that I'm like trying yeah, to. And a lot of the fight scenes just take place out. in like an empty coliseum. That's not yeah, interesting. Most of the Power Rangers me. fights are in a fucking field. Like, you know, <laughs> well, true. They were cheap shows, and this was cheaply made. That doesn't yeah. make that good, and it doesn't make this good. I think it's like punching above its its budget weight. Like as far as like the visual style goes, it really is trying a lot. It did remind me of Soderbergh. It's like so playful. Yeah. Uh, what's really funny about the other ones is they're just as visually playful, but it's a lot of people doing office work, and it's very bureaucratic. Whoa. <laughs> which is like oh, yeah. very fun because it's like the same kind of like dynamism. And one cool thing too is like. Both Ultraman and Kamen Rider, those movies played for like one showing only in the middle of the week. So like the theater filled with people because it's like your one chance to see it. Yeah. Where um, Godzilla Minus One, we rushed to see it like opening day because it was only supposed to play for like a Mm -hmm. week. And it's been going since then. Like it has not closed yet. And now they're re-releasing it. Like Godzilla minus one minus color. They're like re-releasing it in black and white to extend its run all the way into February. So, like, there is an appetite for this stuff. They did fill the theater full of Kamen Rider fans in Metairie. I was there. I saw it. <laughs> you know, like, this is, to me, besides maybe the South Indian action movies we've praised before, like, the most exciting action films being made right now, just on, like, an artistic level. And I do think the visual art is a very important part of cinema that kind of gets brushed to the side a little bit when people are, like, praising, like, subtlety and restraint and, like, narrative significance and to me that's like anti-cinema that's like anti-art like write a book at that point i want to see visual beauty or at least visually striking work in some way because it's a visual medium um cayman writer is very silly it's like a silly movie to make that point (laughs) on but i do think the artwork's very important even if it is silly yeah Hmm. a fire is probably you know a better movie by most metrics but 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 fire has uh, beautiful images too you can have i like that one yeah you know that one had both I like that uh, I took my strongest stances on the two movies that probably are like the least 
offensive swings, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, yeah, I thought our discussion of a fire was going to be more. No, it was a good movie. Was. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. No, no. Solid movie. <laughs> Watching and waiting Oh, she's sitting with you But her eyes are on the door So many have paid to see What you think you're getting for free The woman is wild Is she can't tame by the perfect jacket Oh 